Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. You're not a cop, are you? WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another edition of the WKRP cast. This is our We're Taking Labor Day Off show. No new episode, but we do have a new interview with Bunny Tarlick herself, Stacy Heather Tolkien. We try to make our guest star interviews sync up with the episode where you see them. In Stacy's case, it just didn't work out. She was in Real Families and Frog Story, both from season three. We started season three in the fall of 2021. It so happens we started bothering Stacy for an interview right about the time she was starting her final year of law school. Stacy just became an attorney. She'd had a 25-year career as a special education teacher and decided to branch out. Stacy is just starting a new career where she's applying her legal abilities to educational issues. We didn't finally catch up to Stacy until July of 2022. Yeah, we can be a little bit persistent. We were already well past her episodes, but there was no way we were going to turn down a guest star interview. Surely we could use it somewhere. Well, this is where, for your Labor Day listening pleasure, enjoy a brand new interview with Stacy Bunny Tolkien. Followed by a rerun of one of Stacy's appearances on the show. It's the incredibly goofy pink frog tale, Frog Story. We hope you had a safe and happy Labor Day, and thanks for listening to the WKRP cast. We've got some questions lined up. Yeah. We need to step back a few years <laughs> to your days Quite on TV. How, how old were you <laughs> uh, when you when you got word that you were going to be on WKRP? Let's see. It was in the 80s, right? What year exactly? I'm trying to think. That first episode was probably uh, like 80, 80. Eight, like early 80s, like 80. Okay, it was 1981 was Frog Story, and Real Families was 1980. I would have been uh, seven years old. I was born in 73. So, yeah, I was seven years old. Aww. I was just tiny. <laughs> wow. So, but you had yeah, already was... done a feature film. You were on the Concord, the air- airport movie. I was. I um, I had a part in that, you know, always a little bigger until it makes it to the theater, right? And then, you know, a lot of your scenes are not always in it. But mm-hmm. um, I was the Russian coach, Avery Shriver's daughter. And part of the, the movie Concord Airport 79 was that the Russian Olympic team was heading on the Concord. And that was part of the whole thing. So I was his daughter and I actually played a deaf girl. So ah. which is kind of fits on what we were just talking about. Mm hmm. Um, I had a tutor that taught me sign language and for about, her name was Debbie Barber. Um, that name just comes to mind so quickly. It makes me want to write it down and look it up. I haven't thought of her name in forever. Um, her name was Debbie Barber and she, um, taught me sign language and uh, it was pretty cool. And, uh, then, uh, Avery Shriver learned sign language as well. Awesome. Yeah, it was pretty neat. Do you remember auditioning for WKRP or how that part came about? You know, to be honest, it'd be hard to remember um, this particular interview because in terms of, I think, 
you know, commercials and TV shows and movies. When I was younger, I would probably go on like 20 a week, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, you would go from one to the next to the next. And at the age of six or seven, you know, I, it would be really hard to like distinguish one per from the next. But I always remembered filming. You know, filming was definitely different. Like this was in front of a, um, the real families wasn't, but the frog story was in front of a live studio audience. And I had done that before a few times, but this one was a, a real kind of a spotlight right on me and kind of all me with this live studio audience. So the interview, I don't remember so much, but actually the filming of it, I remember very clearly and vividly. You know, that's the same uh, kind of experience. We spoke with Sparky Marcus Asolio, who played young Master Carlson, and he was uh-huh. telling us the same kind of thing. He said, if you're going to work, you're going to be out four or five interviews a day. And uh, mm-hmm. he, he remembers just his mom running him from one to the next to the next, and that's how you got a job. Absolutely. Um, my mom was my biggest fan. Um, she was my biggest supporter, but she was also, you know, very realistic. I, I, we were actually, my agent, um, came, something came up recently the other day and my agent, we were online and my mom came up as well. And we were just saying how my mom led with her heart, but she was definitely a realist. And so she knew that if I wanted to do this, you know, we sat down and even at that young age and had a conversation because it meant, you know, four or five different interviews per day, or, you know, not just going after school and playing in the street with your friends. Um, it was it was a commitment, and she was committed to it, but I had to be committed to it, too. You said you remember the filming of the episode. It was mainly you were with the Tarlick family. You were never mm-hmm. really on the station sets. Did you ever get to mingle with the rest of the cast? Not when we did the Real Families episode, but when I did the uh, the bunny episode, the, the frog, Greenpeace. Um, sorry, Bunny is my name. Greenpeace was my frog. Um, so the Greenpeace <laughs> episode was was filmed on set. And so I got to actually go sit in the studio booth and sit at all the tables and kind of walk around the set. That was really cool. And then they just built my bedroom off to the side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really neat. And I got to meet everybody. I remember meeting every one of the cast members because I was in school. So even if you only filmed for a couple hours, you were there every day the entire week because this was live studio audience so you rehearse the entire week and then you have your live sh- taping whichever night of the week i can't remember which night it was um and so every day i was on set doing school so even for my five minutes of rehearsal i still was there so i got to hang out and, and meet everybody at that time when i did the um the real families episode all of that was done on location and so i really didn't get to meet anybody um we did it in front of like a, a temple or a church one of them or actually it was a temple we were supposed to be going to church and we were in front of a temple um we rented a home so a lot of the scenes were filmed within the home in the backyard because it was all about you know the tarlick family and, and their home so that one i didn't get to meet anybody but when i did the the episode with greenpeace i did now were you aware of the show or a fan of the show before you were cast on Real Families? I'd love to say yes, but I mean, my mom says it was on, but you know, that doesn't mean I was a fan. I was a six, six or seven years old. So right, it wasn't was really above. Me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wasn't your age group there? No, it was definitely above me. Um, now as an adult, it's a very funny show. I watched it, you know, and it was, you know, in repeats and it was very funny. 
Um, but as a child, no, I was more into, I was a dancer at that age. So when I wasn't acting or doing things, I was very much into my dancing. Now, you were lucky enough to be uh, very heavily involved with two of our favorites on the show, Frank Bonner and Edie McClurg. And we were wondering, actually, one of our listeners uh, said that they would love to hear every memory you have of Frank and Edie, but especially Edie. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So Edie was such a pleasure to work with. She wasn't on the Greenpeace episode, so I only worked with her on the Real Families episode. But because we filmed in a home and we were on location, we all spent a lot of time outside of the people's home, you know, kind of in the front lawn, kind of hanging out under under the set because everybody had a trailer, but it was a little different than when you're in studio. And so she was just lovely and funny as can be. Um, there's a part in, in the show where I, I do a crying episode uh, where, you know, they threatened to break um, my arm, you know, if I didn't eat my food or something to that effect. I can't remember exactly the conversation. And we had to have that episode over and over again. And as a young child, it's hard to do the crying. And, you know, it, that's really acting at that age. And I remember her being so funny and that it being really hard to be serious and get into my crying, you know, my my. I'm supposed to cry. <laughs> um, but I also remember like every part of it because it is a comedy show, right? So when we run into the bedroom at one part and there's like a beer can on the table and she's got the <laughs> curlers in her hair. And I mean, she was just hilarious. And her comedy didn't stop when the show stopped, when they hit cut. Um, <laughs> she was very funny at all times. Um, so, you know, when I was trying to do that crying scene, I do remember at one point having to kind of look the other way. So I didn't laugh as much because just seeing her was very funny to me. Um, not that she was funny looking. I don't want to insinuate that, but she just always like something was coming. You know, she was always on when she was around uh, us kids. Oh, yeah. We, we understand what you're talking about. She is hilarious. Now, you, you brought up one of actually, for me, probably <laughs> the funniest line in the show where you said he took all of Herb the Third's dolls and said, if I say anything, you'll break my arm. Every time I yes. hear you say it. And, Actually, so many of your lines are just devastating. Grandma is dead. Cool in the backyard, you gotta blow it up. Were those scripted, or were those things that they were giving you ideas, and you were kind of doing that off the top of your head? So at at that age, they always would give you a line, and then they tell you a little bit. At least when I was filming this particular show. Um, they would give you, my mom kept like a little journal of things. So I have like little oh, notes. Good and stuff. For her. They would, yeah, she was great. You should see my garage though. I don't know how good it was. We have a lot of stuff, <laughs> let's say a lot, a lot of treasures in there that we got to get through, but, um, you know, they would definitely feed a line or something like that. And then you would definitely feel the scene. Um, so they were always acting with you on the other side of the camera. Um, so were those particular lines exactly the way they were supposed to be? Not necessarily, but they were probably like very, very close. And not because I'll be honest, it's the age of six or seven that I was ad-libbing, but probably more because I forgot exactly what they were saying, <laughs> right? And so it was me saying it in my six or seven-year-old way, right. right? As opposed to saying it in their adult way. Um, so that was kind of how my mom used to describe it. Did you have a sense of how funny the lines were when you were saying them? So the one about welcome to my room in the green piece, if you watch that now and go back, now that I'm telling you this, you'll see me laughing. You'll definitely see me. You can see me snick- snicker. 
um, when I say, welcome to my room, I think you're going to like it here, you know, and then I turn back around and I say, you know, but stay away from my daddy. And in that particular line, you'll see me kind of with a, a little grin on my face. And then I, I kind of ad lib to go with it because I, I knew it was funny and it was a live studio audience and the audience just busted up laughing. So, um, and I knew that that was going to come and they prepared me for that particular line. Um, but everything else, I wasn't prepared. So you'll see throughout it, because it was a live audience, that there are um, some times where I giggled or, you know, kind of smiled and would turn my head a little awkward. Like I felt fun and funny because I wasn't sure what to do. Um, but in the ones where we were off scene and there was no interaction from the audience, you know, that was a whole different story. I really wasn't sure what was funny or what wasn't funny because everybody was just silent when they were filming it. Well, your timing is hilarious, and especially for the age you were. So some of that was natural then, the way you're talking. You were playing off the audience. Yeah, definitely. And the people that were talking to me. So the producers, the directors, you know, on the other side of the camera, they were excellent when it came to the show. And they just really made it like a family thing. So um, my, they included my mom and those kinds of things. So she would sometimes be on the other side of the camera, you know, joking with me and getting me to kind of be just myself. Do you have any memories of Hugh Wilson on the set? Did you get a chance to meet him? meet them but limited memories it was just more of like a hey this is my dj booth kind of area <laughs> you know those kinds of things and stuff but um here's the set you know tours um everybody always liked to show me their favorite part of the set i thought that was fun i don't remember exactly that but i remember the tours and people showing me different parts of it um but that's about the extent of it that was not a real big interaction um, my biggest interaction really was frank bonner uh, for the most part, and then, of course, Edie McClurg when we did The Real Families. What are your memories of Frank Bonner? Kind, very kind. Um, he would come, and when we'd be sitting down, like, eating and stuff, he would come and sit with us and hang out with us. More of like a father figure kind of a persona for us. Um, he was funny, but his humor was not as... Um, big as Edie's was and so at our age I don't know that I understood all his humor in retrospect I can see it in his face when I watch the shows you can see the subtleties um, but at the time it was a little bit more you know it was really hard to, at that age to kind of pick up on all of that. You were a believable father-daughter duo I think the way you were cast. He was sweet I do remember um, I don't remember like the initial interviews, but I do remember, and I thought this was when I had the job, but my mom says I didn't. We did some kind of a table reading and he was involved, my mom said, before I got cast. And I do remember the table reading with him. And I remember him just being really sweet. Like I said, father figured, nice, kind, um, made me feel comfortable in this huge room with all these, you know, big TV executives and him and I reading, you know, and me not reading. I mean, I could read, but couldn't really read and act at the same time at that age. So everything was pretty much, for the most part, was memorized or, or fed to me. I want to throw a couple of more names at you and see if you have any memories of these guys. Your director for Real Families was Rod Daniel, and the writer was Peter Tarakvi. And Frank Bonner talks about interactions with Peter weeks before, talking about them working on ad-libs and kind of the situations they would encounter. Do you remember working with either of those guys on set? As I said before, I remember the directors, you know, being really like friendly and like eliciting a lot of those scenes. So from what you're saying, that would be obviously Rod. But I think at my age, I 
at that age, I wouldn't have remembered those names particularly. I did remember Frank Bonner's name, um, but their names, no. The writer, I don't recall. My guess, if I had to bet, he was probably sitting at that table when I did that that reading, right? And he was probably the one occasionally throwing lines at me. Um, <laughs> um, but um, my memory would be more of the director, you know, giving me that interaction and that ability to kind of play off of him. Um, so for example, when I'm showing the pool, like I remember it's, you know, just me in a pool and it's supposed to be the cameraman, right? And I'm supposed to be like secretly telling the cameraman things. And so, you know, he pretended to be the cameraman. And so he would interact with me, like even before they would take it. So I was actually really talking to him. You're remembering quite a bit. I'm I'm so impressed for only being seven. That how I have a good memory. Remember? I wouldn't remember their yeah. I wouldn't remember their names, but I do remember, and I remember a lot of that though. I'm a talker, um, and so I just remember a lot of talking and conversation, you know, between me and the crew. <laughs> now, at the time, you were not watching the show. You're maybe a little too young for the show. Were you getting recognized like at school or friends know that you were on there? So I did everything I could as a kid to like hide from what I had done. But people kind of knew. Um, I just didn't, I never liked the attention on me, which is ironic, you know, when you do show business, right? Um, which is probably why I'm an attorney now and not, you know, a big movie star, right? I, in college, decided that I thought, you know, cheerleading was more important. And I kind of slithered away and out, out into the sunset and enjoyed my life differently. But, you know, I didn't want that to be the center of attention. So I didn't talk about it at school. Like I never talked about what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people knew eventually started picking up on it, but I would always like downplay it um, and just be like, oh, I don't know, maybe, oh, oh, I, maybe. I, yeah, I think I did something like that. And then just kind of move on. <laughs> Sparky Asolio, Marcus Asolio that played young Master Carlson, he told us the same thing. He never uh-huh. told anybody about it, or if somebody approached him and said, hey, didn't you? He'd say, well, yeah, but he downplayed it as well. And he's in uh, physical therapy now doing, uh, he's a physical therapist. I think that goes to show, you know, our personalities. Um, you know, we we weren't the personality to make it big in show business. You know, that wasn't wasn't who I was. You know, it was very uncomfortable having all eyes on me. Um, mm-hmm. So it's... It, preferable for me not to know I am a a leader in my profession you know I do trainings and I do a lot of seminars and workshops and I do find that my acting background helps me immensely when I do my seminars and workshops my Mm -hmm. as you mentioned my timing when I'm delivering a workshop or a seminar is pretty is pretty good I get good feedback on that kind of a thing so you know people don't know why but it makes me a good presenter and so it makes me good in this field in that realm i'm a i'm also a professor and i like to teach and i'm very enthusiastic about it and sometimes i joke that it's you know it's the stacy show it's the only place that i can perform again is when i'm teaching and being able to read your audience whether it's a group of students or or whatever that's that you use that when you're presenting oh and that is a big one reading an audience especially Mm -hmm. with online with the pandemic it's been huge being able to read your audience yeah for sure now you recently did have uh a brush with your your former performing life, uh, and it was <laughs> your your peanuts involvement. Uh, can can you kind of give us a little bit of, of what you did there uh, back when you were a, a child performer, but then also what you just did recently? 
Yeah. So um, let's see. So when I was a kiddo back again in the 80s, I had the privilege of working for Charles Schultz, uh, Lee Mendelssohn, Bill Melendez, and um, was the voice of Sally in Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Um, I also had the privilege of being one of the voices that did this Saturday morning cartoon that ran for um, quite some time on, obviously, Saturdays. Uh, I'm dating myself, but I know you guys are with me. And on Saturday mornings, you'd sit and watch your shows and they had the Charlie Brown and Snoopy show. And it was the only long running non-special, you know, non-Christmas special, non-Halloween special. It was just a weekly based off of the actual strip that Charles Schultz wrote. And so because of that, the particular people that I did that particular show with have come back and we've been asked, gosh, about 15 years ago, it started, I got a phone call from Brad Keston, who is Charlie Brown. And he said, hey, I got this call. People are interested in having us go to a Comic-Con. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Who wants what? Me? <laughs> like, you know, I was working um, back then. I was finishing up as a school psychologist um, uh, in Buena Park in the Orange County area. And I was just like, I laughed. I joked. And he's like, yeah, people want our signatures. I'm like, I signed documents. Um, you know, Donna, as you know, IEPs, I sign them every day. I'm like, people have my signature all the time. I'm like, this is silly. And they convinced me to go. It was a trip. And I thought, oh, it'll be fun. You know what? I'll go. And then Angela Lee Sloan was with us and she was just amazing. And she played Lucy. And so she went. And so off we went and I got to spend time with my friends. And I just thought it was crazy. Anytime anybody paid for a signature, I just thought that was the most ridiculous thing. Like, why would anybody (laughs) care? And then I realized it wasn't about me. It was about the peanuts and how big and bigger than 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 it than than I am. Like the peanuts and Charlie Brown is just so much larger in life than anything I can ever be or ever will be. It's just such a a brand and a, a life of its own. And so I realized that this was kind of something people really enjoyed it. And I was enjoying spending time with my old friends. And so we just started kind of all hanging out and working together. And we've been doing Comic-Cons and different autograph signings and just kind of doing some fun stuff as a group. And just honestly, for me, it's about enjoying my time. You know, I always say, as long as it doesn't cost me anything, as long as it all comes out in the wash in the end, the travel and all that kind of greatness, for me, it's just super fun to spend time with my friends and to see young kids who were never even alive when this was done, you know, be so enamored with Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Like it's crazy and Sally and, you know, know the whole story more than I know the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they'll be around so yeah. a long time. Oh, those, they're, the characters, the situations, it, uh, a lot of it's just timeless. It appeals to every generation. Yes. It does. I mean, he addressed things way before he addressed you know, LBGTQ. He addressed racism very subtly in all of his strips, but it is there. And he addressed it all from the very beginning. So Charles Schultz was a real leader and, you know, real ahead of his time. And so I think that, you know, again, I didn't realize what an opportunity I had at that age. I was just a little girl, you know, coloring on the floor with Charles Schultz sitting behind me and, you know, Bill and Lee feeding me lines in front of a, you know, in front of a microphone that hung down, Um, you know, and that job actually is one of the few jobs I remember getting because that one has an amazing story. I was filming another voice job in a in a booth next door, and they had a, what we used to call cattle calls, where there'd be like hundreds of kids up for a part, and they were just cattle call going, kids in in all day long, and they had come out to take a break, and they just hadn't heard the voice they wanted, and they heard my voice in the other booth, and so that's how I got the voice of Sally, um, and that's one of those stories you just don't forget because I remember them like 
breaking into the booth, kind of one of those things. And like, can you come read next door for us? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, I had no idea. I want to veer back to WKRP for something real quickly here. You were also involved in the iconic Cordoba of Herb Tarlick. The the Cordoba is legendary, and that's the only time we ever actually saw it. And I was wondering, how much were you in the car? I know it was implied you were in the car on some of the driving scenes, but how much were you actually in the Cordoba? Oh my God. I love that you asked that question. Okay. So when we taught, when I said earlier that we went to a temple, we were supposed to go to church. Do you guys recall <laughs> that scene? We get in the car and we drive away yes. and that we're being chased by a, you know, a camera crew, which was the show. It was a show of a show doing a show on us. Right. And so the camera crew was like following us and we were actually in the car and Frank Bonner was driving and Edie McClurg was in the car and we were all mic. And so um, it was very funny. We had to do it multiple times because some of the things that were coming out of their mouths, they were like, oh, God, the kids, like, it's, you know, we can't. And so, it was, so we did have the pleasure of driving in that. I believe that was the Cordoba, if I'm correct. It was that maroon color car. I can't, uh, no, 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 it was, it was tan, white, it? white with a gold Landau roof. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. But you were inside it. <laughs> I was inside that episode, but now I have to look back at it. If Was it a maroon? I don't know now. Now well, I'm going to want to watch it. Hey, this is Al. I had to go take a look, and it turns out we're both wrong. Herb's Cordoba in Real Families is entirely a yellow gold with white sidewalls on the tires. The Landau roof is color keyed to the car, so the whole thing is yellow. There was also the scene right out in front of the house where you guys are trooping out to go to church and they uh, Herb the Third is carrying his doll and it's doll. commented yes, on by that. And were you hearing the voices or who was giving you the voices of the interviewers, the, the folks that are back in Hollywood? We didn't have those voices of the folks. For me, we didn't as kids. Um, so we didn't have those voices. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that doll episode right there, uh, when they asked about the doll, only Herb could hear that or Frank could hear that. And actually that was one of the, definitely an ad lib line when they threw the doll at me and I said, that's not my doll. Um, and he yells back, that is your doll, bunny. And I was like, not my doll. Like that was definitely an ad lib part there when I said, that's not my doll. Um, that was kind of one of those last minute ones for sure. But it, it was definitely, um, that whatever car we got into, if it was not maroon, then whatever car we got into, we were driving in. That that could be my bad memory, but we got into that car and drove that car. Now, now I now I want to go back and look. I, yes, <laughs> I, I remember it was a light color. That's. I know. I'm looking online as we're talking now. It looks like it's a light color, Chrysler Cordoba. But, but I don't the, see one. Link. The chase scene cracked us up so much because you guys are supposed to be running around Cincinnati, but there are palm trees everywhere in those shots. <laughs> oh my gosh, I never even thought of that. That you know what you have a really they good don't, they you don't have, have palm trees in Cincinnati, yeah, Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> no, they definitely don't. That's really interesting. I hadn't even thought of that one. Um, and then you know, of course, we went up to a synagogue, right? You know, instead of a church. So on Sunday morning, yeah, it was locked yeah, up. Right. <laughs> That is the car we drove in. We drove away and we drove around that track that block for quite some time with, with Frank driving. 
So Greenpeace, the Greenpeace episode was just on actually TV the other day. I think, I don't know if I mentioned it, but it made me, it's what made me think of you guys again. I'm sorry it's taken us so long to get involved in this and get Oh, that's out. okay. You, you have been excellent. This has been, a, this has been great talking with you. Oh yeah, it's some fun stories. My pleasure. And, you know, if you think of anything else or we watch that show and we try to realize, you know, it's a silver car and it was burgundy, I'd be very interested to find out what what color that car is. <laughs> Thank you so much. And give us a listen if you can. We'd love for you to get back to us on what you think. Well, I definitely will give a listen. And what I'll do, too, is I'll give a listen and um, and I'll do like a link on my um, on my Facebook page. I would love to do that. Great. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, thanks for pursuing Alan and, and not letting me go. I'm, I'm not easy to get a hold of sometimes, and I appreciate you pursuing me because this was a lot of fun. Oh, well, thank you so much for talking with us, and have a great rest of the day. Thanks again to Stacy Heather Tolkien for talking to us about her time as Bunny Tarlick. Now, here's a rerun of our episode about Frog Story, which includes Stacy's second appearance on the show. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Donna Stair. And I'm her husband, Alan. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. We're communing with nature today. Donna, what's our episode? Hop on over. We're ready to talk about Frog Story. The air date was the 24th of January, 1981, written by Bob Dolman as Robert H. Dolman, story editor Lisa Levin, executive story consultants Steve Marshall and Dan Gunselman, directed by Rod Daniel. Herb accidentally spray paints his daughter's pet frog pink. He brings the frog to the station to see if anyone can help. The frog does not look well. Herb wants to fix this problem before his daughter, Bunny, finds out. We've got a new name on the writer's line. Although he's credited here as Robert H. Dolman for most of the rest of his career, he will be known only as Bob Dolman. This was one of Bob's earliest writing gigs and possibly his very first. It will also be his only script for WKRP. Bob is both Canadian and a comedy writer, so it's no surprise he would get involved with SCTV. We're guessing P.J. Tarakvi and Stephen Campman may have given Bob his in with Hugh Wilson. Both Campman and Tarakvi had worked for SCTV prior to landing their writing assignments with WKRP. Dolman would go on to write more than 50 episodes for SCTV, both as the SCTV Network and the SCTV Channel in the early 80s. Two of Bob's biggest writing credits were on the big screen. He has the screenplay credit for the hugely popular fantasy classic Willow from 1988. He also has the screenplay credit for the 1992 Ron Howard film Far and Away, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Dolman would also share the story-by credit on Far and Away with director Ron Howard. Bob has even appeared as an actor. 
uncredited several times on SCTV and as a bit part in Far and Away. In his personal life, it appears that Bob's time on SCTV had another fringe benefit. That's where he met and married his wife, funny lady Andrea Martin. The two would be married for 24 years and have two sons. They divorced in 2004. Dolman was also brother-in-law to SCTV alum Martin Short. Short married Dolman's sister, actress Nancy Dolman. Nancy passed away in 2010. Robert is still working at age 72. He currently lives in Culver City, California. It's like the six degrees of Bob Dolman. Yeah, we're connecting up with Bob all over the place. I'm wondering if he might be related to Roy Penny. (laughs) (laughs) How about it, Roy? Roy. (laughs) (laughs) We start out in the lobby where Jennifer is looking through the top drawer of the filing cabinet when Herb enters. Herb is carrying a box. Jennifer tells him good morning and Herb grunts a response. Herb goes through the mail on the corner of Jennifer's desk and then quickly walks toward the door that leads to the bullpen. Jennifer asks Herb if something is wrong. Yeah, something's wrong. Could I help, you know, without really getting involved? (laughs) Herb tells her, no, he doesn't think so. Jennifer says, okay, and she goes over to sit at her desk. Yeah, no Jenny Pooh, no good morning, right. gorgeous, something's That's, wrong. Jennifer thought something was wrong. So Herb hesitates, and he asks Jennifer if he can show her something. <laughs> Herb walks over to Jennifer's desk. She says, okay. He sets the box in front of her, taking the lid off. Jennifer looks into the box and makes a face. Why do you have that? I uh, think it's dying. <laughs> it's pink. I know. It's a pink frog. (laughs) Herb tells Jennifer, this is Greenpeace, his daughter Bunny's pet frog. Herb was spray painting the inside of the kitchen cabinets last night, and he accidentally sprayed Greenpeace. Bunny's frog is named after the international environmental campaigning network called Greenpeace. Founded in 1969, the Greenpeace mission is to protect the Earth's ability to nurture and sustain life. They do this through research, lobbying, and what they're most known for, direct action, called ecotage. Greenpeace does not accept funding from any government corporation or political party. They did accept a donation of $5,264 from the cast of WKRP. In 1979, the cast appeared on a celebrity edition of Family Feud. Welcome to the sixth all-star Family Feud special, introducing for the first game, the Love Boat family. Gavin McLeod, Fred Grandy, Lauren Tweez, Ted Lynch, and Bernie Coppell, ready for action. Playing against the WKRP family. Gordon Jump, Lonnie Anderson, Tim Reed, Frank Bonner, and Howard Hesseman. On your mark, let's start the All-Star Family Feud Special. Here, my buddies, WKRP fans. Welcome. Thank you, Richard. Nice to be with you. I'm delighted to have you here, and tell me, please, who you have with you. I'd be delighted. Uh, Lonnie Anderson, to my immediate right, Tim Reed, Frank Bonner, and Howard Hessman. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you. And uh, as this is your first time here, it's uh, CBS, and what time, and what day? 
Monday nights, 9.30. A little blatant, but why not do it? You're kind enough to be with us. Absolutely. We should. Weren't you on soap, though, at one time? Yes, I did. Chief of Police Tinkler. Yeah, I thought you <laughs> What's the charity you're going to play for? What is it, gang? Greenpeace. 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 Oh, yes. the whales? Greenpeace. Boy, oh boy. That's a worthy cause. They played for Greenpeace and won. Jennifer is suppressing laughter and is about to explode. Something funny? No. <laughs> Johnny comes into the lobby and asks Jennifer if she has any aspirin. Jennifer tells Johnny they're out. Oh boy, how about morphine? <laughs> That's a big escalation from aspirin to morphine. Johnny walks up to the desk and looks in the box. Good God. Johnny asks, what's this? Funny's wrong. Herb painted in pink. New hobby? Herb explains, Herb explains it was an accident. He didn't mean to do it. He was spraying and the frog jumped in his way. Pink's the wrong color. <laughs> Johnny leaves the lobby. Still trying to control her laughter, Jennifer apologizes as Herb slams the lid down on the box. I'm sorry, Herb, I really am. I I nearly killed my daughter's favorite pet. Jennifer tells Herb maybe they can do something, and she asks to see the frog again. Jennifer tells Herb the frog is not moving. Herb gets very upset. He asks her to do something. What? I don't know what to do. Herb runs over to the coffee maker. Water. He He needs water. Jennifer's tapping on the box. He is not moving at all. Herb grabs a coffee pot full of water and he runs back over to Jennifer's desk. He dumps the water into the box. Oh no, Herb, that's hot! (laughs) (laughs) Herb flings the coffee pot. He's already poured the water, but he flings the coffee pot and it smashes against the wall right by the entry door to the office just as Art is walking in. (laughs) Art stops short at the door looking in and as Art stops, we head on into our theme. All right, and what we have learned is we do not want to be one of Herb's pets. I don't think so. That does not look like a good future for you if you're one of Herb's pets. We come back to the studio, and looking at the back wall of the studio, we've got some new posters to check out. The Doors' Red Wedge is up for another week, but right under it is a new poster for Susie Quattro. It's a promo for Susie's seventh studio album called Rock Hard. It's considered her best album of the 80s. Susie is the five-foot-tall singer and bass player from Detroit, Michigan, who rocked out on Happy Days as Leather Tuscadero. Susie never really found commercial success in the U.S., Three singles were released from this album. The title track peaked at number nine in Australia, but it stopped at number 51 in the U.S. is truly beloved internationally. She's sold an estimated 50 million albums worldwide. And here's a fun tie back to WKRP. One of the backing vocalists on this album is Michael DeBar. Yes. That's Dog from (laughs) Scum of the Earth, and you might remember we interviewed him for Season 1, Episode 4, Hoodlum Rock. You better. Have a beautiful day, man. To the right of the door, up high, is a black and white poster for British ska band, The Selector. This is a promotion for their 1980 debut album, Too Much Pressure. The album would peak at number 5 on the UK chart. 
The single, On My Radio, would hit number 16 on the UK singles chart. Neither the album nor the single would chart in the U.S., Selector has broken up and reformed multiple times in the last 40 years. They've released a total of 16 albums, with the most recent coming out in 2017. Under the Selector poster is a promo for British hard rock band The Babies, featuring John Waite on lead vocals. This poster is promoting their fifth studio album, On the Edge. The Babies had scored a couple of top 20 hits in the late 70s with Isn't It Time and... One that I remember every time I think of you. I had that one on 45. This album would yield one charting single, Turn and Walk Away. will barely miss the top 40, peaking at number 42 on the Billboard Hot 100. The album will hit number 71 on the U.S. album charts. Back to the studio, Les is at the mic, finishing up with his news report. And finally, did you know that only a miraculous set of circumstances makes life here on Earth possible? For instance, the planet's size is just exactly right to hold our atmosphere. The atmosphere contains just enough oxygen to support life. And our distance from the sun is just perfect for the right temperature. Should there be even a trivial change in any of these conditions, all life here on Earth would most certainly be obliterated in a matter of milliseconds. Johnny is standing at the door, looking irritated as he waits for Les to wrap it up. This is Les Nessman saying good day and may the good news be yours. This has been the early news with Les Nessman. Johnny asks Les if it was a slow news day. Les tells Johnny he's ending all his reports with some human facts. People seem to like it. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stare with her report about Les Nessman. Right upper forearm. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Les looks at Johnny, kind of gives him a double take. What's wrong with you? What do you mean? Well, your face. It's gray. It's not your normal gray either. It's more ashen than usual. Johnny tells Les he has a little headache and he may be coming down with something. Les says Johnny should go home and drink plenty of fluids. Johnny doesn't think it's serious. What are the symptoms? Johnny tells him to hold on a minute. He turns up the volume in the studio. Nesman, Cincinnati's window to the world. Johnny then starts You Really Got Me by The Kinks. 
All right, somebody hand me the Windex because the view is getting warped. This is the doctor, and these are the kinks from way back in 64. You really got me going. You got me so You Really Got Me was written by Kinks frontman Ray Davies in March of 1964. Davies says it was one of his first attempts at songwriting and is probably one of the first five songs he ever wrote. Amazingly, it was written as a slower, more jazz-oriented tune. He said the signature riff was written as a sax line. Ray's brother, Kinks guitarist Dave Davies, decided a fuzzed-out electric guitar would be more fun than a sax. Of course. Good choice, Dave. You Really Got Me was a number one smash in the UK and scored top ten hits around the world. It would go to number seven on the U.S. Hot 100. Power chord laden, You Really Got Me, has also influenced legions of heavy metal and punk guitarists for a generation or more. Les is concerned about Johnny's health. He walks around Johnny and asks him if his legs are sore. Johnny says, yeah, now that he mentioned it. And headachey in the frontal lobe up here. <laughs> Les flicks Johnny on his forehead. You hear Les's finger as it bounces off Johnny's head. It's a thwack. <laughs> up here. <laughs> More and more. Les walks behind Johnny and puts his hands around his neck, feeling Johnny's lymph nodes. Hmm. <laughs> Les comes around in front of Johnny, lifts up his sunglasses, and pulls Johnny's lower eyelids down. What about your joints? <laughs> Johnny's eyes open wide, and he looks at Les. All it takes is that slight little eye movement from Johnny, and we get that cue about the double entendre. It's another primetime pothead hint. Are, are they giving you trouble? Uh, yeah, a little. <laughs> Les asks Johnny if it hurts to touch his chin to his chest. Now, this is a new one for me. I didn't know about the chin to one. chest yeah. thing, so Johnny says he doesn't know. Les tells him to give it a try. Yeah, it does hurt a little. And I think it would hurt right now if I did it and I feel fine. <laughs> I have too many chins. Yeah, Les takes Johnny... <laughs> I can't get it to my chest. So, so Les <laughs> takes Johnny's arm and pulls him forward away from the chair so he can get his hand behind him. If I touch you here, in the small of your back, yeah. right there, does that seem slightly sore. And yeah, poking Johnny in the back, it hurts. And he's, he's poking pretty hard. A lot of force yeah. there. Johnny has this pained expression on his face. Uh, it's a little tender, yeah. Les has to see Johnny's hands. Johnny holds out his hands and Les looks closely, examining Johnny's fingers. Now Johnny is a bit concerned now. What do you think's wrong with me, Les? Les pulls his hands away from Johnny's and he holds <laughs> them up in the air, like a doctor would after scrubbing in. Les Nesman, MD. <laughs> Probably just a simple cold. <laughs> we get the idea Les might be lying. He's looking warily at Johnny. You should see a doctor, John. If not now, at least by noon. Johnny gives a nervous <laughs> chuckle and asks why. I'm a newsman, not a neurologist, John. Neurologist? Les holds his hands up in the air. Would you please excuse me? He runs out of the studio, holding his hands up and out in front of him. We see him give one last look of concern as he passes by the studio window. A worried Johnny looks at his hands and then puts his hands up by his throat. I'm dying. <laughs> 
Talk about messing with somebody's head. Yeah. Does that seem slightly sore? So we cut into the bullpen, and this one is happening all in one day, all right there on the station sets. Herb is sitting at his desk, the box with the frog in it in front of him. The lid is off the box. We can see where holes have been punched in the lid. Bailey is bending over the box. He's not dead, Bailey. He's just resting there. That's, that's all. Yeah, he's trying to <laughs> make it sound like he's living. Bailey tells her she didn't say he was dead, but he looks a bit pathetic. Taking her pencil, Bailey tries the eraser <laughs> on the frog, <laughs> rubbing it quickly back and forth. Won't the paint come off? <laughs> and it's time. Herb Darling. Fashion alert. We think the jacket that Herb is wearing is a different picnic tablecloth-looking jacket than the one we've seen before. It is red, white, and blue checked. But there are bands of the same fabric just above where a cuff would be on the sleeves held together with a button. It's a weird look. Yeah. It is so weird. It's coming over the top. and The material on both the breast pocket and the lower pocket is turned at a 45-degree angle. He's wearing a white dress shirt with a diagonally striped tie. I wonder if it is the same jacket. They just added those cuffs and turned the pockets. You know, the design, though, seems heavier to me. I thought oh. the other one was kind of brighter. I don't know. It's a weird-looking jacket. Les enters the bullpen and says good morning. Good morning, Les. Herb has a sick frog. Bailey tries to explain the situation to Les, but she keeps starting to laugh. She tells Herb to tell him. Well, his name's Greenpeace, Les, and he's pink. So don't look at him and tell me he's pink because I already told you he's pink, okay? Les nods his head. Yes, he understands. Herb tells Les he accidentally spray-painted him. He hands Les the box and removes the lid. Les smiles down at the frog, then looking at Herb. He's pink. <laughs> Les talks to the froggy. Hi there, Greenpeace. You look like a cute little froggy. Les shakes the box a bit, and then he looks at Herb. Does he? doesn't move around much. He's a very sick frog, Les. Oh, I see. What shall we do? I don't want to hear it, Les. Les asks Herb why, which brings us to... The line of the episode. It's bad luck to take advice from insane people. <laughs> Les goes into his office. I've never heard that one either, but I think that's a good bit of advice. Yes. Don't take advice from insane people. So we need to talk for a quick second about this setup. First off, Canadian WKRP blogger Roy Penny points out you probably wouldn't paint the inside of your cabinets. Okay, with modern day cabinets, we agree. They'll stay unfinished wood with maybe a shelf liner. But if Herb has older metal cabinets, which he might have had in the 70s, then yeah, we could see painting the insides of his cabinets. So maybe you'd need to paint the insides. But pink? The color seems to be way weirder than painting the inside of cabinets. We're putting the color choice squarely on Lucille. Yes. But also, why was the frog in the cabinets? So many questions with this setup. Maybe they were lower cabinets. You Might know, have been like on the under floor. The sink Might have been or, the floor cabinets. That could have been. And the frog got out yeah. somehow. Andy walks into the bullpen, and he goes up to Herb's desk. Mr. Carlson wants me to find out why you're throwing coffee pots around the lobby this morning. <laughs> I have a sick frog on my hands, Andy. Oh. Well, that explains it. Andy's jeans really tight. Oh, yeah. Uncomfortably tight, just to look at him. And the way he raises his leg, you know, and puts him up on the couch sometimes. <laughs> I'm just waiting for a rip. Herb asks Andy if he wants to see the frog. Hey, why not? I like to have as much fun as the next guy. 
Herb tells Andy that the frog is pink. So don't look at him and tell me he's pink because I've already told you he's pink, okay? I accidentally spray painted it. <laughs> Herb takes the lid off the box and he hands the box to Andy. You did what? Herb repeats, he spray painted him. Andy looks down at the frog, then back up at Herb. You painting your car? <laughs> Why does he think Herb would have a pink car? And what's he going to paint the Cordova pink? Herb shakes his head and tells Andy he's painting cabinets. Andy asks the frog's name. Herb says it's Greenpeace. Looks like Pink Peace. <laughs> Which that was a setup from a mile away. Oh, yeah. Bailey is at her desk cracking up. Herb shoots her a dirty look. Herb explains Bunny named the frog after the people who go around saving baby seals and whales. She may be a little kid, but she's an environmentalist. Bailey tells Herb, well, that's wonderful. Herb asks them if now do they see how this is going to look? I mean, I've almost killed this innocent product of nature with toxic chemicals. My daughter's going to hate me forever. Well, he hasn't croaked yet, Herb. Give him time. And, oh, the frog puns. Thankfully, they don't do too many of these. They do make me a little jumpy. All right. (laughs) Andy suggests Herb call a vet. Herb tells Andy he did, but they don't make house calls. Les comes over to Herb's desk saying he has a suggestion. Herb doesn't want to hear it. Andy tells Herb, Les knows about nature and science. Heard your news report this morning, Les. Better stop it. (laughs) Andy asks Les for his suggestion. Les wants to call Dr. Honeyset. Andy asks if he means the guy on the third floor. Les says yes. Les, he's a podiatrist. (laughs) (laughs) Les says he's the only doctor in the building and he's a very nice man. Herb tells Les it will make him look stupid. Yeah. That's what'll do it. Yeah, yeah, not painting a frog pink. That's not going to make you look dumb. Herb, podiatrists take four years of medical training. Oh, call him, Herb. The frog is dying. Just pick up the phone and say, Hi, my pink frog is dying, and I would like you to come up here and take a look at his feet. Bailey starts laughing. Herb turns and gives her another very dirty look. Bailey apologizes, saying she couldn't resist. Herb asks Les to please go get the podiatrist. Won't be easy. But we all know that I can be extremely persuasive at times. Not to mention frightening. Podiatrists have an educational path similar to other MDs. To be a podiatrist, you must complete a four-year undergrad degree, do another four years at an accredited school of podiatry, then another three years in hospital residency training. Podiatrists receive the designation DPM, for Doctor of Podiatric Medicine. We head out to the lobby where Jennifer is at her desk making herself a cup of tea when Johnny enters. Jennifer. Yes, Johnny. Could you get me the name of a good neurologist? Johnny's not looking good. He's shaky on his feet and he heads over to sit down. Jennifer tells him she thought he just had a headache. Jennifer helps Johnny to a chair. I failed the chin-chest thing. <laughs> the chin-chest Yeah, that chin-chest thing's got him really messed up. Les comes into the lobby with Dr. Honeyset following. Les brought a doctor. Are you a neurologist? No, I'm a podiatrist. Podiatrist? I don't understand. It's the study and treatment of feet. I know that. Dr. Hunnisett is being played by Kenneth Tiger. American actor Kenneth Tiger started acting in 1970, and he hasn't stopped yet. 
His IMDb profile lists more than 170 credits, but many of those are for multiple episode arcs. He was on 15 episodes of The Man in the High Castle for Amazon. He was a returning judge on The Good Wife and a recurring character on both Growing Pains and Dynasty, among so many others. Kenneth was in the 2021 miniseries Dope Sick, and currently he has a movie in post-production. Interesting note, Kenneth really is a doctor. He has a PhD from Harvard in German literature. Les tells them that Dr. Honeyset is here to see Herb's frog. Les and the doctor head back to the bullpen. Johnny calls the doctor back. Jennifer's standing next to Johnny, helping him stand. My head aches, my throat's sore, I ache all over, and I want you to see this. Johnny slowly <laughs> bends his chin to his chest. Sounds like the flu. Well, Johnny's thrilled to hear this. <laughs> I got the flu. Congratulations. And he said, looks down at Jennifer's feet. It's nice feet. I know. <laughs> now we're in the bullpen where Dr. Hennesset is looking at the frog. Les observes over the doctor's shoulder, holding a handkerchief over his mouth and nose. The doctor is holding up the frog's legs. We can see the frog feet. <laughs> well, of course, he's looking at the feet. He's a podiatrist. <laughs> we get a glimpse of the frog's legs and underbelly here, and they definitely did not paint the prop frog pink. Yeah, how could they not do that? Yeah, because it seems like a detail they'd have done. We get a little glimpse of the frog a couple of times. Dr. Hunnisett tells Herb and Les he doesn't know what to do. Herb tells him he must know what to do. Look, Herb, in medical school, all we ever did to frogs was cut them up. We never tried to save one. <laughs> Let's go talk to the receptionist. <laughs> and I never would have thought of that. They do chop up frogs all the time in medical school. <laughs> Herb walks over and sits on the DJ's desk. He's very upset. Herb, I don't know how to say this to you, but I really think that somebody should. What? It's just a frog. And you call yourself a doctor? It's more than a frog, it's Greenpeace. People and their pets. Johnny comes into the bullpen. You're telling me that is the truth. This morning, I think I'm dying. All anybody around here can think about is this frog, the pink frog. I'm a human being, you know? Johnny continues saying it's just like in the movies. You can waste the entire Confederate Army. Nobody cares. 395,000 guys, deader than doornails. But... You kill one collie, everybody collapses in grief. Yeah, that always bothered me, too. Horses dying and dogs dying. We're not sure where Johnny's getting his Confederate Army casualty figures, but according to a consensus by historians, about 270,000 Confederate soldiers died during the U.S. Civil War. The Union lost 360,000, putting total casualties in America's bloodiest war at between 630,000 and 700,000. Dr. Honeyset leans towards Les, and he asks him, what's wrong with Johnny? Schistosomiasis. Really? What? <laughs> Les tells Johnny, it's probably just a common cold, but the symptoms are suspiciously similar. Herb just wants to get back to the frog. Johnny looks at Dr. Honeyset and tells him he said he just had the flu. I don't know. I do feet. See a specialist. What, a, a, a neurologist? Okay. The word we all learned from this episode is schistosomiasis. It's an infectious tropical disease caused by parasitic flatworms released from freshwater snails. That's a mouthful, that sentence. This is why it's also called snail fever. As many as 200,000 people die each year from schistosomiasis. And I wanted to mention that statistic. 
there's a range that I found. It's anywhere from 4,000 up to 200,000. Wow. So I don't know who's measuring that or where those numbers came or from. Or why but it's such a wide range. 200,000 might be a little high. It's most commonly found in Africa, Asia, and South America. Less is right. Early symptoms are a general feeling of illness, fever, aches, coughing, chills, and gland enlargement. How did Les know this? Les, <laughs> it's around at night reading medical books. Herb <laughs> asked the doctor to please get back to the frog. The doctor suggests giving the frog an aspirin or something. <laughs> Johnny yells at them. Wait a minute, I got schisto something. Herb tells Johnny to get out. Please, John. Johnny is shocked. I suppose if my throat was throbbing and I was eating flies, I'd get a little attention. <laughs> Johnny leaves the bullpen. Herb Les and Dr. Hunnisett are all bent over the frog. The doctor tells Herb the paint needs to come off the frog, but he doesn't know how to do that. He just came up as a favor to Les. You know, he was my first patient. Venus comes into the bullpen. Herb goes over to Venus. Listen, how do you get paint off a frog? <laughs> Thinking that Herb is telling a joke, Venus smiles. Oh, I don't know. How do you get paint off a <laughs> frog? <laughs> it does sound like a joke setup. It does. Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a dark brown velour jacket over a patterned shirt with dark slacks. The collar on his zip-up jacket is a lighter shade of brown, and it's flipped up. Venus's name is embroidered on the left side of the jacket, and a WKRP logo over a radio tower is embroidered on the other side, it's a cool-looking jacket. Herb takes Venus over to the frog in the box and tries to explain to him what happened. And here's a frog who's dying because I painted him. Uh, do you understand that? Uh-huh. <laughs> Venus nods as he looks questioningly at Herb. Venus, surely you must know some sort of black thing. You know what I'm saying? A black thing? Yes, you know, some sort of plantation voodoo thing that helps get paint off a frog. Wow. Les is being very sincere as he looks at Venus. But he's so clueless, and, and his naive racism can... It can really be a slap in the face, can't it? Yes. Les comes at you sometimes with those, and it's really shocking. Venus looks back at Les for several moments, and Venus is kind of shocked. Oh, what? Venus <laughs> <laughs> then notices... Honeyset, and he asks who he is. The podiatrist. Oh. I don't know anything about frogs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I love <laughs> Venus's what? <laughs> oh, what? Honeyset tells them all he doesn't think a vet would know what to do either. You couldn't make a living out of something like that. Herb is very upset now. Honeyset tells Herb he's sorry. He'll just have to hope for the best. He shakes Herb's hand. Bailey has picked up the box to look at the frog. He's dead. Herb rushes over to look. He takes the box from Bailey. I want a second opinion. He starts over toward the doctor, <laughs> but Les grabs the box and looks at the frog. Tossing the box over to Herb, Les tells him... He is dead, Herb. Herb tells Les that he wants the opinion of someone with authority. He walks over and hands the box to Hunnisett. And when Les tosses the box, the frog bounces up, and we get a really good look at him. It's very clear this frog is not pink. Dr. Hunnisett takes the box, tosses it, so the frog pops up, and it flops back into the box. Again, it's not pink. Yeah, Herb is gone. Herb stares at the doctor. Gone? The doctor 
puts his hand on Herb's arm to comfort him. He tells him he's sorry. What am I going to tell my daughter? And we fade to black going into a commercial break. We come back to the bullpen. Bailey comes into the bullpen telling Herb some sort of arrangements should be made. She offers to bury Greenpeace if Herb doesn't want to do it. Bailey, you're very kind, but... I mean, he's just a frog. Well, Les suggests slipping him into the river, like a burial at sea. <laughs> Herb tells Les, no. I thought that was a pretty good idea. Cremation? Of course, we'd have to burn him. <laughs> Venus comes into the bullpen and approaches Herb. Hi, Herbie. Look, uh, I got to go on the air, but I just wanted to say I'm sorry. I mean, uh, I didn't know Greenpeace, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure he was a fine frog. <laughs> Hey, who's kidding who? He was a right-on frog. Venus tells him to be brave, and he leaves to go into the studio. Mr. Carlson and Andy come into the bullpen. They both tell Herb how sorry they are to hear about the frog dying. Yeah, I mean, frogs are, are frogs. I mean, they like to jump, they like to swim. They don't do a lot for society, but on the other hand, they don't create a lot of problems. You know what I'm saying, Herb? Herb tells Carlson, yes. Yeah, unless you're a fly or an insect, it's kind of hard not to like a frog. Thank you. And then Herb, you are going to pay for that coffee pot, aren't you? Or it's comforting words. Yes, but he's got the coffee pot on his he's mind. He's still worrying about the coffee pot, yeah. Jennifer tells Herb Bunny is on the phone. Herb says he can't talk to her. He asked Jennifer to say he's on a sales call. Bunny, your daddy can't come to the phone right now. Yes, he'll be home soon. Greenpeace? Oh, honey, I don't know. Okay, bye-bye. Herb has a worried look on his face. He asked them what they think he should tell his daughter. And he says just tell the truth. Jennifer agrees. The frog is dead. And death is the logical, unavoidable conclusion to all things. Herb kind of rolls his eyes at this. Bailey decides to share her profound thoughts about death. I guess we all think about death. I went to the beach this summer and I watched the waves. Now, a wave is a wave, but only for a second, and then it's over. But the water that makes the wave continues to exist. It's just not a wave anymore. The camera is on Andy, Carlson, and Herb as Bailey is talking. Herb looks a little frightened. Andy looks like he can't quite believe what he's hearing. And Carlson looks like he is really focusing, trying his hardest to understand what Bailey's telling them. That's that's a lovely thought. (laughs) Herb's face. (laughs) I love it. I'm thinking Bailey may also have had some problems with Johnny's joints. That is one trippy meditation she's getting into there. Herb picks up the box and he starts to head home. And he tells Herb to just tell the truth. Right. We transition to Bunny's bedroom. Bunny is lying on her bed, reading when the door opens and Herb comes in. And we see a Save the Whales Greenpeace sticker on the inside of Bunny's door. They couldn't paint the frog pink, but they got the sticker. (laughs) That was a nice touch. Yeah, they got this nice little sticker on Bunny's door. Herb is carrying a box. Bunny jumps up, happy to see her dad. Hi, Daddy. Where have you been? Herb tells her he's been busy. It's almost 8 o'clock. I know. Where's Greenpeace? Herb tells Bunny he has good news for her. He walks over to the bed, pulls the box out from behind him, and sets it on her bed. Greenpeace. He's okay. He's just fine. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the doctor got the paint off of him and everything, and 
Wait, just fine. Go ahead and take a look. Liar. <laughs> Bunny is being played by Stacy Heather Tolkien. We first met Stacy in Real Families. For her bio, make sure and check out that episode of the podcast. We would like to make one correction. We indicated in the podcast uh, that Stacy had retired from performing in her teens. She has, in fact, recently reunited with her Peanuts voiceover group to help create a TV special and attend animation conventions. To see what Stacy is up to recently, you can find her on Facebook. We also see a poster of a baby seal on Bunny's bedroom wall. Another nice touch. Yeah. Bunny lifts the lid and she peeks inside the box. Greenpeace, you're all right. She slams the lid back down, telling her dad that he tried to jump. Herb tells Bunny that she may not want to look at him too much because <laughs> he's been through a lot. Herb tells Bunny everything worked out okay, everything's just fine. I mean, sometimes frogs get sick and then they, they get well again, you know. But, uh, well, the main thing I want you to know is oh, I, I, I didn't mean to hurt Greenpeace on purpose. I mean, if he had died, and th- thank goodness he didn't, uh, well, I would have felt terrible. I mean, it would have killed me to to know that I hurt something that you loved. I just, I'm just accident prone, you know? Do you understand that? Uh-huh. Bunny lifts the lid of the box to peek at Greenpeace again. Herb gently closes the lid as he <laughs> tells her, He often does stupid things, and he says things sometimes he doesn't mean. Bunny tries to peek again at the frog, and again, Herb closes the lid, telling her he hurts people's feelings, and he doesn't realize he's doing it. He repeats, he says he's accident-prone. Well, I'm a walking faux pax. (laughs) It's a a French word, and I'm not sure what it means either, but I mean... I, I really need Frida to know that, uh, well, I, it's important that you keep loving me and, uh, and believing in me. Think you can do that? Yes. Herb's pronunciation was unique. He was going for faux pas. This was originally a French word that has been borrowed as English. In French, it literally means false step. It was first used in English starting in the 1670s. Merriam-Webster defines it as a significant or embarrassing error or mistake. Herb thanks Bunny and tells her just keep loving him. That's the important thing. Herb gets up, telling Bunny he's headed to eat dinner. He walks to the door, then turns around. He's got a pang of guilt. That's not really Greenpeace. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Bunny knows what's going on. Yeah, she knows. We'll we'll bury Greenpeace. Herb tells Bunny they can bury Greenpeace in the backyard where they can honor him all the time. Bunny nods her head. Herb leaves and Bunny takes the lid off the box to talk to the new frog. Hello, new frog. Welcome to my room. I think you're going to like it here. But stay away from my daddy. (laughs) Well, we cut back to uh, the studio for our capper scene. Les is on the air again. And did you know that within the next 24 hours, over 500,000 tons of soil will have been carried by the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico? How long can something like that continue? (laughs) Think about it. This is Les Nesman saying good day and may the good news be yours. 
This has been the only you. Johnny enters the studio. Les tells him he's looking more his usual gray today. Johnny tells Les he had him scared to death last night with all the schistosomiasis talk. Johnny goes into a tune that continues under the rest of this scene. Now, if you'd have been listening back in January of 1981, you'd have heard Randy Newman doing Gone Dead Train from 1969. Here's a little of what it sounded like from the Big D, Dale Kovar's recreated discs. And I talked to a doctor, and you know what he said? He told me I got a cold. I'm coming down with a cold. It's not a big cold, just a little cold, you know? John? Do you realize how many mistakes doctors make each year? (laughs) Shout Factory couldn't get permission for the original recording, but they were able to commission a cover version of the actual song. And I talked to a doctor, and you know what he said? He told me I got a cold. I'm coming down with a cold. It's not a big cold, just a little cold, you know? John? Do you realize how many mistakes doctors make each year? (laughs) Gone Dead Train by Randy Newman is about as rocking as you will ever hear, Randy, if you can find it. We found a copy posted on YouTube. My engine open steam and I was grinding at you hard to fan. I was burning down the rail to heat the wake, hauling ass and riding up the track. was Randy's contribution to a 1969 movie soundtrack for a film called Performance. It doesn't even show up on Randy's discography because it's a song he contributed to somebody else's soundtrack. It was never released as a single, but it is an immensely rockin' tune. It really is, but you cannot understand a word he says. (laughs) Johnny says he went to a clinic to see a doctor who told him he was coming down with a cold. It's not a big cold, just a little cold, you know? Johnny, do you realize how many mistakes doctors make each year? I've got a report right here about a doctor who sewed up his Timex inside a patient. You see stories like that every day. Wildly incorrect diagnoses, wrong limbs being removed. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Les continues to be frighteningly right when it comes to medical mistakes. According to WebMD, more than 4,000 preventable mistakes happen in surgery every year. Some of the worst, removing the wrong testicle, implanting the wrong lungs, amputating the wrong leg, and performing heart surgery on a patient who had a respiratory infection. We also came across an unnecessary brain surgery and the removal of a healthy kidney for no reason. Leaving a foreign object in a patient like a sponge or a towel happens about 40 times a year. Performing the wrong procedure happens about 20 times a year. We could not find an instance of a Timex, or any watch for that matter, winding up in a patient. Ready to go to the doctor? Yeah. Johnny asks Les what he's trying to tell him. Do you realize how little doctors know? Wise up, John. Les pats Johnny on the shoulder and walks to the door to leave. He turns before leaving. Come to think of it, when somebody goes, usually the last person he was with was a doctor. (laughs) 
Les leaves the studio, but then hovers outside the window watching Johnny, who is taking off his sunglasses and using them as a mirror. He's pulling his lower eyelids down to inspect his eyes. And we fade on frog story, a fun little story about a pink frog and her. It's not and, really pink. <laughs> it's not really pink. So what's up for next week, Donna? We will be discussing Venus and the man. It was originally titled Venus Flytrap Explains the Atom. The station's cleaning lady asks Venus for a favor. Her son wants to drop out of high school. She wants Venus to talk to her son, who's a gang member, about staying in school. Venus bets the boy he can make learning more interesting. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Find us on social media. You can follow our Facebook page at WKRPcast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPcast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye, y'all. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger! <laughs> <laughs>